Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, the task is too great. The responsibility, Heavenly Father, too awesome. The servant, too weak. The burden, so great. How can it be, Lord, that that a man should be asked to divide the word of God? Father, thy servant is unable to do that. But we know, Heavenly Father, that in thy scriptures we are told that thy strength is made perfect in weakness. So, Father, we would ask that thy servant might be set aside, that thy spirit might speak. Thou knowest the needs of thy children. Thou knowest, Heavenly Father, the hearts that need to be touched. Thou knowest why weeks ago already, Lord, you gave me a scripture. Father, thy servant finds great comfort in the fact that even if not one word was uttered by thy servant, that thy spirit could speak to the minds and the hearts of those here and their ears would hear and they would be given understanding. So in that faith, Lord, thy servant goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Several weeks ago, Dear ones, the Lord laid a scripture on my heart and some experiences that I'd like to share with you this evening, all factual, all very real. We're going to talk about some journeys that were taken. We're not really going to talk about books being opened because those books talk about judgment. But before judgment, there's life. And the Lord would have me speak of life rather than judgment. So with the help of the Lord, I'd like to read many verses out of Acts chapter 27. I will begin reading with verse 9, but I will give you some background while, we are, while you're finding those scriptures. The Apostle Paul has appealed to Caesar. They are making plans in preparation for the journey. They've begun the journey. They've sailed a bit. And they now find themselves on what they thought would be the final leg of their journey. They have met up with a ship from Alexandria. A large ship. Has over 260 or 70 people on it. I don't remember exactly. We'll get that detail in the end of the chapter. And they're getting ready to sail. So with the Lord's help, I'd like to begin reading with verse 9 in chapter 27. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion, 
believed on the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven or harbor was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain Phoenice and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete, and lieth toward the south and west and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat, which, when they had taken up, they used helps under the girding of the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strake sail, and so were driven. And we began exceedingly, and we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. I'd like to pause here at verse 20 and and go through what we've read to give you perhaps a little bit greater understanding of what's taken place. It's now the tenth day of the seventh month. It's not the time to sail anymore. Uh, the weather is not conducive to sailing. Nonetheless, the harbor that they were in was not one that was, says, commodious. It wasn't really a good place to winter. So the centurion that was charged with Paul listened to the owner of the boat and the captain and said, um, No, Paul, we're not going to heed your warning. We're sailing for Italy. Paul says to him, you know, hey, I, I believe that we will not only have a loss of our, of, our, of our cargo, the lading on the ship, but also lives. And they leave. And as they leave, they, they get up one morning and the, and the weather seems to be calm, so they think, obviously now, the gods have seen it that we should have safe journey to Italy. So they leave. And that's in verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose. Loosing thence, they sailed close to Crete. Now, they obviously didn't think that it was going to last very long because they stayed close to land masses. And it says in verse 14, But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. This tempestuous wind was a hurricane or a nor'easter or a cyclone in that region of the world, I guess. But it's a hurricane. And I want you to realize, they don't give us the dimensions of this ship, but later on they'll tell us how many passengers were on it. This was a large ship. This was no small sailboat. This ship had to have been at least 150 feet long, if not longer, to house, I believe, 270-some people, and we'll read that later. And then it says in verse 15, And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. They lowered the sails and drifted. It's a dangerous thing to be in a hurricane with your sails up. Sails were meant to catch wind, but not that much wind. And now they're getting worried. 
and running under a certain island, which is called Clauda. What that means is that they perceived, and I've tried to do this once in a boat when I was in some pretty rough weather, if you can get to the leeward side of the island, the downwind side of the island, it, the winds will be less and the water will be much calmer. We had, and so, and running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. They, tail, they, they trailed their lifeboat behind the ship. But now they're realizing that it doesn't do us any good to have anything else tethered behind us. So let's pick up the lifeboat and get it on the ship. When, we, when they had taken up, they used helps under the girding of the ship. They ran lines around the hull of the ship to try to bind it together. See, this vessel is large, and I'm sure it was built extremely well. Just to, when I think of the cargo and the, and the crew that was, and the, the cargo not only of, 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 of wheat, grains, and things, but also of the people, they were taking prisoners, lots of prisoners to, to Italy. So they try to bind up the ship with ropes. I kind of wonder what that was like to try to get those ropes where they wanted them to be. They obviously had to start at the bow of the ship and let them and, and pull them back because there's no way you're going under a ship in that type of a storm. And fearing lest they should fall into quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. So they reduced even more of their sails at this point, and these quicksands were located off the north the coast of North Africa. So they've already drifted quite a ways. So now they're worried about quicksand. And being exceedingly tossed with a tempest the next day, they lightened the ship. We got to get this vessel so it isn't sitting quite as low in the water. We're taking on water here. This isn't going to last. We've got to somehow reduce the, the, uh, the, the weight in the ship, the ballast, and get her up higher. So on the third day, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. Anything that was not absolutely critically necessary to operate that ship was cast overboard. All the furniture went overboard. All the tables in the mess hall went overboard. Any auxiliary sails that they had went overboard. Verse 20, And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope, that we should be saved was then taken away. Hopeless, completely lost at sea with no way to get home. And the vessel that seemed so strong and stout, the ship from Alexandria, was coming apart. And they were abandoned at sea. I'd like to continue reading in verse 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me and have not loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. So now everybody's despairing. Everybody's worried. Nobody thinks they're ever going to see home. And Paul stands up and... He probably couldn't resist to say this. You should have listened to him. I told you this was going to happen. But he says, be of good cheer. Wait a minute, Paul. We just threw everything we absolutely didn't need overboard. 
We, don't, we, just, we know that somehow we've been blown by the north coast of Africa. We just barely missed quicksand. And now you're telling us to be of good cheer? For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whom, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. God spoke to his servant. You see, Paul didn't say, the God that I serve alone. He said, the God whose I am. Paul belonged to God. Paul wasn't just a prisoner passenger on that ship. Paul was God's. And God said, Paul, you're going to Caesar. You're going to get there. Don't worry about it. And by the way, Paul, I'm going to give you every other life on that ship. Nobody is going to die. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit, we must be cast upon a certain island. But when the fourteenth night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, or the Adriatic Sea now, about midnight the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. Oh my goodness, land! We have seen nothing but waves and rain and thunder and lightning. And now we obviously are getting somewhere near some land. And sounded and found it 20 fathoms. Fathom is six feet. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again. They did a depth sounding. Now they don't have the, the joy that I do of just looking at my depth sounder. They had to lay down weights on ropes down till it hit bottom and then they'd and they'd read on the rope how far they were so they went from 20 fathoms to 10 fathoms they're now in 60 feet of water it's getting shallow then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks they cast out four anchors out of the stern the back of the boat and wished for day this was happening at night i wonder how they knew they were getting close to land if it was night but i'm not gonna someday i'll ask paul that question and perhaps some of the crew that believed on what they experienced that day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, oh, no, I got a problem with that one. They're going to abandon ship? The shipmen, not the passengers, the crew, was going to abandon ship. And when they had let down the boat, that's the one they had trouble getting up on the boat in the past, under color as though they had cast an anchor out of the ship, the foreship. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. You can't jump out of the ship. You can't abandon ship. You got to stay with the ship or you're going to die. Then the soldiers, not the crew, the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall away. I can imagine what this was like. The crew is getting ready to abandon ship. Those that had human wisdom that knew what was what and what wasn't. They knew everything there was to know about seamanship. They're getting ready to get into lifeboats and Paul makes this statement. And what happens? I can imagine a soldier taking a sword out and going whack! And the rope spinning off the ship as the lifeboat floats away. And the soldier said, you're not going anywhere. We're in this together. 
And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Fourteen days, two weeks they haven't eaten. They're weak. They need strength. Wherefore, I pray you, take some meat. I'm sorry. We, uh, yet, wherefore, I pray you, take some meat, for this is for your health. For there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. You might get wet, but you're not going to lose one hair off your head. I know this because God, whose I am, has told me this. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. No secret prayer here, folks. Paul prays and thanks God for the bread that would sustain them through the trial and the struggle that they were about to face. He wasn't ashamed of anything. He was speaking boldly. Then when they all, when they, then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were in all in the ship, 200, threescore, and 16 souls. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. Now they threw everything out. Nothing in this boat but people. That's it. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore in the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust the ship. Now this is really smart. They're going to try to save the ship as best they can. So they have this area that they can see where a creek a mouth of a creek comes out into the sea. That's the place to put the ship. I've done that already. Not with a ship, but with a boat. I can tell you about that some other time. And when they had taken up the anchors, remember they had four anchors off the stern. They pulled up the four anchors. They committed themselves unto the sea. Guess what, folks? There's no turning back now. We've pulled up the anchors and we're moving. And we're going that way. They loosed the rudder bands. They hoist up the mainsail. We're going quick. Put the sail up. That's where we're going. Tw main sail to the wind and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. Now I'm going to explain to you what's happening here. The forepart, the bow of the boat, the bow of a boat is a stem. The stem runs down the bow meets the forefoot, which connects to the keel. That's the spine of the boat. The forepart stuck fast. So their stem and forefoot are wedged into the rocks. Remained unmovable. But the hinder part, the transom, stern, is facing the wind starts to come apart. Broken with the violence of the waves. Let me explain to you what's happening to this vessel. The bow of the boat has stopped. The back of the boat is continuing forward. The keel begins to shatter. There's no backbone. The chines or the, 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 the planks... The structural planks that are where the bottom of the boat turns to make it to the top start to pop out. And everything in the back of that boat starts coming forward. 
Think of a car that might have hit a bridge. The soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from, from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some of them on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. This should have been disaster at sea. Even the ship was broken apart. Paul told them that. Paul said, we will, there will not be one man lost of this ship. We are all going to make it to our destination. But we're going to lose the lading, the freight, and we're going to lose the ship. And boy, did they lose the ship. I can only imagine the sounds, the creaking of that wood as planks peel back. And the main structural members crushed under the weight of these hurricane force winds. And they still had a sail up. So at one point when the structure around the mast comes apart, the mast is going to be snapping forward. Violent destruction like you can't imagine. Waves and rocks all around them. And not one soul is lost. Because Paul belonged to God. It didn't matter what Satan threw at them. It didn't matter what onslaught he'd unleashed. Paul belonged to God. I'd like to talk to you about two other boats. True story. The one boat, I don't remember its name, but I'm going to give it the name Adventure. Adventure, it's a 33-foot fountain. Step tall to increase velocity. Get that hull out of the water so it can move as fast as it can. Its beam, the width of that boat is 8 feet 6 inches. It weighs 8,800 pounds. It holds 136 gallons of fuel. Top speed is 82 miles an hour. And by the way, at top speed, it will burn 75 gallons of fuel in an hour. It's powered by twin 425-horsepower mercury outdrives. Bravo 1X outdrives. The engines are 490 cubic inch, high output, fine-tuned for racing. The propellers, two stainless steel double propellers. So that means that on each screw, each engine, there are eight blades that will turn. Talk about another boat. This boat's name is Tradition. 22 feet long. Eight-foot beam. Powered by one small block V8 Chevy. 307 cubic inch. Generates 210 horsepower on one single screw with a three-blade bronze 14-12 pitch prop. Both boats in the same waters of Alexandria. It's a Saturday morning. It's in the eighth month, approximately the 15th day. The sky 
azure blue. The wind, mild, like chop. As adventure gets ready to leave its docks in Alexandria Bay, the captain looks over his vessel, has one passenger, his girlfriend, takes the propellers out of the suitcases that he keeps them in to make sure they don't get damaged, and he mounts them on the outdrives, checks his fuel tank, tops it off, checks his oil, makes sure everything's running well, fires up one engine, thunderous roar, fires up the second engine, doubles the sound, straight exhaust pipes coming out the back, an amazing sound, lets the engines warm up, begins to ease the boat into forward. Transmissions shift nicely. Those beautiful stainless steel blades, all 12 of them, begin to churn up the crystal blue waters of the St. Lawrence River. He eases out of the town of Alexandria Bay. Things are going well. He eases his throttles forward. He's got two of them, so it takes a strong hand to ease it forward as this, this amazing powerful boat begins to make its turn into the St. Lawrence Seaway. Tradition. Captain checks his crew. A crew of ten. Propeller's already on the boat. Tells each one of the passengers in the vessel where the life preservers are located. Five life preservers are in a case under the bow of the boat. Five are under the rear, starboard, or right bench. Captain starts the engine. The small block Chevy roars to life. Straight pipes, no exhaust. And the roar comes alive. The captain eases the transmission into forward. The bronze blades begin to churn up the cold blue waters of the St. Lawrence. Captain eases out of the port at Key Waden State Park, makes a right turn going east in the St. Lawrence River. We'll row the time frame now toward midday. It's probably one o'clock in the afternoon. It's a, it's a busy day because it's Pirates Weekend. Jolly Roger flags are flying from the transoms of a bunch of boats. Adventure has spent the morning zipping up and down the channel. Speeds of 50, 60 miles per hour. Tradition, sitting lower in the water, somewhat concerned about the size of the swells that are found in the river due to the boat traffic, decides to plot an alternate course to its destination. The captain has forgotten his charts. 
not totally blind, using a GPS with a screen much too small. He starts through uncharted waters. The Coast Guard radio next to the captain on tradition comes live. There's been an accident. Coast Guard is needed at certain location. Coast Guard rescue boats race up the main channel. Adventure had accelerated. 4,000 RPMs, 50 miles per hour. 4,800 RPMs, 60 miles an hour. 5,200 RPMs, 70 miles an hour. 6,000 RPMs, 82 miles an hour. And adventure hits a swell. These boats are made to break water every now and then. But the captain of adventure realizes that he is airborne far too long. His first concern is Bravo X engines. So he tries to slow them down because you see free spinning props. He'll blow his engines pretty quick. Tens of thousands of dollars worth of engines. The nose starts to drop. Adventure hits a wave. Adventure's captain hits the dashboard and is dead. The passenger thrown out of the boat before it hit the swell. Death on the river and destruction for adventure. But what about tradition? What's happened to the, the boat with a crew of 10 and no charts? The passengers or the crew on the boat are enjoying the day, looking at the many retreats and castles and cottages on the river. It's amazing. If you've never been there, you have to go and see the Thousand Islands. The captain stands up so he can see the waters clearer. And he's troubled by something. Something's telling him to look at a seagull. So he does. And he looks away. Something constrains him to look at the seagull longer. So he does. And as he gets closer, he realizes the seagull is not swimming. The seagull is standing, but he can't see its feet. With no time to slow the boat, the captain throws the throttle down, the transmission in neutral, and spins the wheel to the port side. As the boat turns, the captain looks over the side and sees a shoal a jagged top of a shoal that looked like the Matterhorn, for those of you that know anything about Switzerland. Inch and a half or two inches below the water. That close to disaster. That rock would have ripped into the hull of tradition, would have begun peeling planks back and breaking ribs. The crew was safe. The boat was safe. Why? The captain belonged to God. How do I know that? 
I captained that boat. I experienced it, dear ones. It was God above that was telling me there is something about that seagull that you need to notice. I'm helping you here. You have nine other people on your boat. The waters are deep. And you're saying, how can it be deep when there's a shoal? Fifteen feet from that shoal, dear ones, it could be 230 feet deep. Lots of boat traffic. The captain of adventure didn't have a pilot in courts of glory. He was interested in the thrills of this world. He had everything the world could offer. One of the fastest boats designed by the team at Fountain Boats. And if I'm not mistaken, Reggie Fountain still has his, his handiwork in every new model that they put out. He had the fastest engines that could be purchased. They roared to life. Everything was going great. He was pursuing his dream. And he died in the river. A different kind of watery grave. My friend outside of Christ, you will hit storms on this earth. Your ship has already sailed. There's no going back. You're out there. Who is the pilot of your ship? Do you know that no large vessels ever go into a harbor under the power of their captain? None. There are pilots that take vessels into harbors and through canals. You can't drive a large ship through the St. Lawrence River. You might be the best captain in all the world, but if it reaches a certain size, you're hiring a pilot to take you through. Who is your pilot? Have you thought about it? The books will be opened. But what's going to happen until they're opened? That's up to you. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where's the good way? And walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. My friend outside of Christ, don't look for the adventure. Don't look for the fountain. that can, You can get a fountain in anywhere from probably a 24-foot up to 50-foot fountain. Or maybe you'll buy a hustler boat. Or maybe you'll buy a Donzi you will end up in shipwreck. You will end up with no hope. Smashed on the dashboard of that vessel. And if you don't die in the crash, you'll drown in sorrow and brokenheartedness. And that's all before the books are opened. Choose the old ways. Go with the traditions that you have been taught. The ways that your parents have walked and your grandparents have walked. The, the true and proven paths. But what did they say? We will not walk therein. 
the prophet Jeremiah told them, choose the old way. And they said, no, we won't walk in those paths. Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 31. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Why are you choosing death? I stood in front of the unconverted teens. Talk about a separation. If it were not for those that were in that room that have been announced as having peace with God and those that have been sincere in their repentance and I could see it on their faces, I would have been looking at a group totally destined for hell. How many of you cared? There was a separation there, dear ones. I said to them, I wish that I could have, through a teleconference, you could see the converted teens so that you could look in their faces, so that you could see hope and promise, possibility and joy. Why will ye die? You don't have to. This is God speaking. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. 